0: Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entre Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Matt Handel, welcome to Entre Architect Podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's great to have you here. Matt Handel is the founder of Help Everybody Every Day and the author of Proposal Development Secrets. He's the former contributing editor of SMPS Marketer and leads the Construction Owners Association of America's Communication Committee. Matt has appeared in Engineering News Record, the architect's handbook for professional practice, as well as other industry publications and provides marketing and business development strategies that actually work. So Matt, I, I, I wanted to bring you on the show today to, uh, to sort of, you have lots of different topics you can talk about. Um, and, uh, and you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording here, and um, you know we're talking to small firms. We're talking to sole practitioners, firms of five to 10 people, all working to try to be successful in businesses, and we're gonna talk about how small firms can compete with big firms, and I love that topic. Um, but before we jump into that, I wanna know more about you. I wanna know your origin story, when did you discover your passion for what you do today and, and maybe who or what inspired you to pursue that passion?
1: Okay. Well, Mark, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it back to uh, a little bit prior to when I was born. All right, cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it was about 19, early 1974, I would say. My house caught on fire. Our hmm. house was on fire and my mom luckily got out of the fire uh, with me in our belly and I survived that fire. You see, my, my dad was the worst contractor who had ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> and he, him and his brothers built houses and he was building, he built an a addition to our house. And he thought to himself, well, I'm a carpenter by trade, but you know, I don't need one of these uh, electricians I could kind of just wire the house up myself, you know, I do electrical work myself. And thus, that was kind of my introduction into, into the world of construction. And I never really thought that I was going to kind of get into, and I call it the construction industry, architecture, engineers, and, yeah, yeah. and all that, into that industry. But lo and behold, you know, after I went to college for uh, public relations uh, and journalism, and I kind of found myself first working for a real estate firm and then working for a pretty large MEP design firm out of out of New York City. So you,
0: were you doing PR work for those firms?
1: No. Uh, in fact, uh, so uh, we used to work a lot with a firm called HOK that, you're, that I know you're familiar with.
0: Very right? familiar. Yeah. Friend of the so show. There was
1: this architect from HOK in New York City would come. Down to our office and uh, he had the bow tie and everything. and he And he asked me one time. He said, "Matt, what is it that you do exactly here?" And I said, "Well, I'm a propostitute. and that's what I did. You know, I, I'd submitted propose, uh, proposals all day, and we were. I was submitting at the time 150 proposals uh, a year, which." sounds like a lot, but when you talk to other people in in the industry, there are certainly people that are doing more than that, right? And some of them were multiple binders. Some of them were, you know, a 10-page document or something. So it it ran the gamut. So after college, you know, I found myself essentially working in this this, um, world of proposals. And I did that. I didn't even know existed. You know, I, I when I went to marketing class or public relations class, there was no like, oh, well, you can work in an agency, but you could also, did you know that there's thousands upon thousands of people who are writing and submitting proposals for, for you know, architecture and engineering and construction contracts? <laughs> no, it's like no, it's like nobody, there's this whole shadow industry that nobody knows about, really. Yeah. You know, and I always joke that there are more. I mean, there's. If you think about how many architecture firms are out there, and how many engineering firms, and how many you know commercial construction firms are out there, there's more of those firms than there are dentists' offices, right? And you consider that each one of those firms has one person working on proposals. You know, HOK, Gensler, they have a couple more than more than one. I would say. Yeah. Uh, there are more people working on proposals than there are dentists more people working on proposals than there are working on teeth.
0: (laughs) And that's a lot in my my town here, there's a dentist at every corner. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And yet there's, you know, there's this whole shadow industry, if if you will, that nobody really knows exists. You know, your kids don't know that, oh, there's a job out there that you can write proposals and help architects get contracts that, you know, our kids don't know that this job exists.
0: Right. Not a lot of 10 year olds when you ask them what you're, they're going to be when they grow up, say, I'm going to be a proposal writer.
1: Yeah. So we all fall into this and, and I fell into it too, you know, and, and where I got real, I had a couple interesting experiences. One, and I worked a lot with pharmaceutical companies. We we submitted proposals to pharmaceutical companies and, Mm -hmm. I wrote what is what is historically known as the worst proposal ever written, right? <laughs> this proposal was so bad. It, it said, we are going to design you the most fantastic lab space. You know, trust us, we'll do, do a great job. Well, what the customer really wanted was like class B office space. <laughs> and the client's name was spelled wrong. Yeah, and it wasn't like I spelled... It was Bob and I wrote Robert on there. Like the company's name was spelled wrong throughout the proposal. And it wasn't for an insignificant amount of fee. It was like over $100,000 worth of fee. The surprising thing about that experience is that we won. We won that contract. So I was in the senior vice president's office kind of lamenting about this, you know, like if, if what I do for a living doesn't have an impact, you know, What's the point of my job? And he said, "Matt, just chill out. Don't worry about it. That guy owed me a favor, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know. And I, I, you know, I learned later that he killed that guy's wife. But no, that that wasn't the favor. But I don't know what the favor was. But uh, but that that kind of piqued my interest because, like, okay, well, how do we how do we win contracts? Right? How does this actually work? this whole system, how does this work? So that was an interesting experience. And then years later, I I was working for a small firm and had to hire a a marketing coordinator, a proposal coordinator to help me out because we we were doing so many. And I was like, well, I don't know how to get get people to do what I tell them to do because nobody does what I tell them to do. I tell people to do stuff all the time. Nobody does it. (laughs) So how do I do that? And I stumbled upon some, some academic research on social psychology and how to influence people's decisions. So that was the other kind of real big piece to him. Like, okay, how how can we use this social psychology and the psychology in what we do to influence the decisions of, of, owners and, and people who are going to uh, and even architects who are going to decide to use us or not use us. So that's kind of how the long story of how I got into it and, and how I got interested in it. Cause it's, it's kind of two different things. You know, sometimes you, you get into it and get interested in things. Yeah. Uh, what I tell my kids, and this is probably another rabbit hole is you get good at something And then you get interested in it. Then you find your passion once you get good at something. Yeah. And that's kind of how it happened for me too. Like once I started, I'm starting to get pretty good at this. That's when the passion kind of grew.
0: And so what are you, what are you doing today? Are you, you, are you still working for those big firms?
1: Uh, no. So what I do today is I provide in person and, and, virtual training and help firms uh, improve their proposals and win more contracts. You know, for example, there was a firm out in in California and one of the practices started, they went through my online course first. They started implementing stuff and their uh, proposal win rate, as they call it, jumped 10 X in one year. So this kind of got up to the, to the, firm principal or head of the firm. And he was like, what's going on here? You know, so we, we, we did this Matt handle stuff in our proposal and proposals and, and we want, I didn't even think that was possible. They went from like 4% to 40% in one year. And ironically the next year they went up to 60%. So a couple of months later I get a call from them and they're like, oh, we want you to come in. We want you to, you know, spend uh days training everybody in our you know in our firm this is a mid-sized firm on proposals i said well they wanted me to spend like i don't know three three or four full full days talking about proposals you know with different groups and uh we cut it down to two because eventually i said listen i could talk for full four full days about proposals and writing proposals, but the, the reality of the situation is your architects don't want to hear me talk about proposals for that long. So that's that's basically a lot of what I do is is training. Sometimes it's like it's a it's a like a must-win kind of situation. You know, someone will call me up and say, hey Matt, like listen, we need your help on on this proposal. And they'll bring me in for that. You know, they typically, you know, you don't want to bring me in for like a fifty thousand dollar proposal or even a hundred thousand dollar proposal. Really, uh, it's usually like the bigger two hundred fifty million dollar kind of deals right. that you would, you know, that people would bring me in on. So, would so you would you
0: work with with a firm to help sort of establish a proposal system, like a, a, a like a template that they would use, or you you just work one-on-one with specific proposals when necessary?
1: Yeah. So there's a template in my business is like a dirty word to some people. Yeah. Explain that. Why? Well, it's, it's really a, a terminology confusion. So the, the, the big business of proposals really started with like what they call the beltway bandits in DC these big consulting firms that were uh, submitting proposals to the government. And in their world, people use templates. Um, our ter- in the, in the construction, construction industry, our term for template, what they call template is boilerplate right you know like their template was just all right, just change a few words and submit the proposal and that's your template. So I don't do any like boilerplate stuff per se yeah. um but what i i in my course I actually provide a proposal template it's like in in design and, and microsoft word that is like the design of the proposal
0: to a, frame, people, a framework
1: yeah it's like a framework of proposal you know what should be in it like things to think about mm-hmm. when you're putting this proposal together and um, i it's it's actually Based on the proposals I've used you know, years and years uh, when I submitted proposals to governments and, and, and or clients all across the country, really. Um, so, yes, I you know, I provide templates for people. I I like to say to some respect, process agnostic, you know, because everybody has their own proposal process. You know, if, if, if you don't have a proposal process, there's, there's a, a book that I always, I probably don't have on me right now, but look, uh, a woman named Laura Ricci wrote a book called The Magic of Winning Proposals. And that has a pretty good process for, you know, outline for how to, how to uh, put together a proposal s- system, if you will, from soup to nuts, from how do you target different clients to... You know, what information do you need to get from them before the proposal RFP hits the, hits the street? And then how to put the proposal together. To me, that's the best book on writing proposals that's ever been written. Um, and I was fortunate enough to help publish that uh, after, after Laura retired a few years back. So, but yeah, I'm always happy to talk to people and, and help them out you know, um, in different ways. A lot of times it's training again. Uh, and in my course, I provide a lot of that stuff, like, like templates, design templates, and I'm big in formulas. So like I, I even in the, in the architect, uh, AI handbook, I, th- at least, I don't know about the newer edition, but a edition a few years back, um, had my formula for determining which projects go into your proposal. So I have formulas for that. I have a formula for like how to write the, the description of your firm. They always ask you like, hey, tell us a little bit about your firm. And they'll say, well, we've been in the architecture practice for 10 years and we're a full service firm and we work with churches and libraries and universities and stadiums and graveyards and... And, you know, that's the typical thing. Well, yeah. that's pretty garbage. So I have a template on like a formula, more of a formula for like, okay, how to write something that's compelling.
0: How did you, going back to that, that firm that you worked with, that you went from four to 40% and 10x their proposal success rate, what generally, what, what did you focus on in that situation to go from four to 40
1: well, my, they took my course, uh, so I, I, let me t- answer that in a couple different ways. They took my course, and and again, the course teaches you, like, one of the things they did was they completely changed how they did cover letters uh, based on my for- formula for writing cover letters, um, you know, but how they changed a bit how they approached the whole proposal process based on, on my... Uh, uh, you know, on my system or, or on my, uh, what I call the win writing system. But also when they brought me in months later, I was able to do a couple of different things. Like, so one of the things that's in my course, believe it or not, being in about proposals is how do you get meetings with clients? I have a process for how to get meetings with clients. I call it how to get meetings with the busiest people, you know, the most unavailable people. So these, some of the architects in this firm had a lot of trouble getting meetings with people. And once you get a meeting with somebody, like, what do you do? Do you like to say, Hey, I'm an architect and you should hire me, you know, or how do you, what do you ask? What do you talk about during those meetings? So I did a lot of training on that and people, architects would say, geez, I I used this and I got a meeting (laughs) with a client. And then like, all right. And that turned into business, you know, eventually Um, I was also do something very interesting. And I think it's somewhat unique just because of the, um, some of the connections I have. What I'll do is this firm in particular worked a lot in healthcare and universities, as many architecture firms these days do. So I brought in uh retired executive from a large university and healthcare system and he gave him like the straight deal what's it like being on the other side of things you know what it is what it is what what is it that you like working with architects what do you don't you like when you're working with architects you know what's the best uh proposal or presentations you've seen and what distinguished them from each other. And because he was recently retired, he could be a little bit more forthright on how, on how he did it. You know, he explained how, how, when proposals came in, how did I look at him? You know, he actually, and this was really, uh, I mean, he's a great guy. Uh, Not everybody's this, this good. He would line them up on, on a big table. And he would flip them, every single one of them, page by page, compare them against each other at the same time. Not everybody's going to do that. I know know a person that what she used to do was, and she worked for a municipality, she uh, would get a stack of proposals and she would look at the cover and she'd say, this person, this firm's a player, this firm's not a player. The players would go on this side and the firms that weren't players would go into the circular file. You know, so there's different ways that different owners evaluate proposals, but it was great for this architecture firm to hear from a, a real client giving you the straight deal. Because a lot of times when, you, when you're an owner and, and you're interfacing with your vendors, if you will, you know, you want to be a little bit careful about what you say. Like, for example, if you're giving a debrief, you don't want to be too detailed in your debrief because the problem, what happens is the next proposal that comes out, if you tell them what to say in the proposal, now you're getting 20 of the same proposal because you told everybody what to say. Right. And you've now created a problem for yourself. right? So it's good to get somebody who's like kind of recently out of it to, to talk to the architect's.
0: Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Do you have ideas about how to improve the architecture profession? I know you do. If you're listening to this podcast, you definitely have ideas about how to improve our profession. NCARB wants to hear from you. Their ongoing analysis of practice study is your opportunity to shape the future of architecture. Share your experiences and insights from working in architecture and tell NCARB what you wish they would do better. This is your opportunity to let NCARB know what you wish they would do better. Your feedback will help guide changes to the national experience and examination programs for architects and impact what being a licensed architect could look like. Whether you're an architect or you work with architects, NCARB wants to hear from you. Make sure your voice is heard. Contribute to the analysis of practice study today. Sign up at NCARB.org slash AOP. That's N-C-A-R-B org slash A-O-P. ncarborg slash A-O-P. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out your financials on your own is not one of those things. Luckily there's FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not so fun parts of running a business from building and tracking invoices to managing online payments to organizing expenses and automates them with features like the new digital bills and receipt scanner saving you up to 11 hours per week in the process, 11 hours. FreshBooks has your back at tax time too. It's almost tax time. With a ton of reports to choose from, you'll know exactly where your business stands and you can easily hand the keys over to your accountant so they can take over when it's time to reconcile everything for the year. F- try FreshBooks, try FreshBooks for free for 30 days, no credit card required, it's free. Go to freshbooks.com slash architect freshbooks.com slash architect to get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So what will you do with your 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by Arcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues, but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, a.k.a. CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by ArtCat. Listen and subscribe right now at artcat.com slash podcast. That's arcat.com slash podcast, A-R-C-A-T.com slash podcast. Detailed. Every building has a story. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. As I mentioned uh, earlier, the, our audience are, are small firms, right? And so... We're talking to thousands of of small firms right now. And um, they're all putting together proposals, trying to get the next big job. Um, And some of them would like to compete with those bigger firms. Um, Do you have any specific tips or strategies that you would use or offer to those architecture firms that wanted to compete with larger firms, but don't typically compete with larger firms? What would you suggest to them?
1: Yeah. Um, so let me tell you a story. This is whew, probably 20 years ago now. Uh, there was a, an opportunity out on the street from for uh, Bristol Myers Squibb, which is a pharmaceutical company. I think maybe they've merged, but they were a pharmaceutical company years ago and it was for one of their research facilities. And they had a group of different architects that worked at this research facility, but they they thought, well, let's give a smaller architecture firm a chance because this happened to be a, a renovation of their fitness area, right? So it was a relatively small job from a fee standpoint, fitness area. So HOK and these other big firms were invited and the small firm, this small local firm was invited too. So the small local firm went in there, they presented, they knocked it out of the park and they won the job. The reason they did was because they put in so much more thought into their presentation than anybody else. And these other big firms, the mistake that they made was they didn't realize how important this project was. Because if you're a pharmaceutical company and you have researchers working for you, you, if you ever go into those facilities, they got dry cleaners, they got the grocery store, they got the fitness center. Those things need to be top notch because you wanna attract the best researchers, right? So some of these bigger architecture firms just saw oh this is a small job. You know, we're not going to put in the effort that we would for a big job. Right? But they had their so this other firm ate their lunch because they went into it understanding how important it was and taking the time to kind of plan the project in their head, you know, prior to to this presentation.
0: How was that communicated to the client that they, that they cared more than the
1: larger firm? It was, it was the, the detail. I mean, when you're sitting on the other side of a presentation, you can tell who spent a lot of time and effort on this prep and who didn't. Yeah. Who's just kind of winging it here. Um, it's it it gets to be fairly obvious, right? When you're sitting, in it. so it was fairly obvious to to these owners, uh you know who really spent the time and effort on this job and who was just kind of winging it, right? So that's that's the best explanation. I can't go into it was so many it was so many years ago. I don't remember exactly the the details of what they presented, right? But but you can tell, and just like anybody else, when when it, Uh, anyone else pitches you on something, you could tell kind of who knows their stuff and who doesn't know their stuff.
0: What do you recommend in terms of once you prepare that proposal and you do the research that you need to do and you understand who your client is and, and how to communicate that and you submit that proposal, what happens after that? Once you submit it, do you have any suggestions for our listeners on what to do after you submit the proposal?
1: What to do after you submit the proposal? So there's different um, different clients have different processes. I'm gonna answer this question, then I'll probably go back on, a, on another tangent here. So you once you submit a proposal, sometimes you're restricted in what you can do. Right? Especially if it's a government agency yeah. you're restricted to, to what you can do and what you can't do. Certainly you could call the appropriate person and uh, you know follow up with them, whoever that they, they may be, to, to see, hey, you know, I mean right before the right before COVID really hit, you know, we as uh, a firm I was working with submitted a proposal to the uh, port authority new york new jersey for for a very large contract, and you know I was calling on on the appropriate person and you might not get them right away, but you got to be pretty consistent and we probably a year and a half later that job was awarded to the firm that i, I was i was I was working with. But we, you know, I kept it pretty consistent on reaching out to this to this person. One, it kind of shows that, hey, you're still interested. You're, you're, you're passionate about this. Um, and two, you know, it shows that you're on top of it. You know, you're, you're proactive versus, versus reactive. Now, that was a situation where there was no presentation because in my world, sometimes there are no presentations, but, but sometimes there are, there are our presentations, and that's kind of a whole other world. But going back, I'm going to take a little detour here. You know, if I'm a small firm and I want to compete with a big firm, and I've I've been, uh, I've been in this situation. I worked for a small construction consulting firm that went up against Jacobs and all these other big firms, and our advantage was that we were niche, right? Some of these big firms, they do everything. So you had a specialty. Right. So we had a specialty. Although we work with, with, uh, you know, every type of firm and every type of industry, we had um, a very specific services niche. and we spent a lot of time on what they call now thought leadership in that niche. You know, for example, we, we analyzed construction claims and disputes. Right? We developed and wrote the course for the Federal Highway Administration on, analy- you know, on avoiding and, and managing construction claims. Right? So we worked with a lot, a lot of DOTs um, and even if if we would have, I don't know, I can't even, I, I, I want to be careful what I'm saying uh, about specific firms, but let's just say my niche was going to be uh, university labs, right? La- not labs within university settings. I I would do whatever I could to speak and train about that topic and write about that topic and be seen as very knowledgeable about that topic, even if it cost me money at the end of the day to do so, right? Even if it was at a loss to do so. So niching down is one thing. Uh, another thing that, that small firms can do. And I know that it's, it's tough when you're a small firm that you get this opportunity here, this opportunity there, and it's hard to be selective about them. It's like, we'll just throw out and we'll we'll see what we get. Yeah. I would always suggest that you put together what's called a no go, no go process to determine what you go after and what you don't go after. And there are a lot of different processes out there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, okay, I grabbed one from my website. Here's my process. That's okay when you're starting out. But what I would do is say, how I used to look at it was how much money we spent on a proposal versus how much a fee we got from that. So kind of a return on investment look at. So I would say, okay, let's look at all the proposals we submitted. And let's look at the fee they generated or didn't generate, right? And we'll say, okay, for the ones that, what was the return on investment if this criteria was in place? For example, the firm that I work with uh, in Philadelphia, if they knew who we were, if they simply knew who we were, whether we won or lost a proposal, if we submitted a proposal, the return on investment, was tremendous, simply knowing who we were, right? right. But that might not be, that might not work for every architecture firm out there. You know, you simply know for, that's not gonna work for HOK. Yeah, it's gonna have, it's probably gonna be some other criteria or set of criteria to determine what they go after and what they don't go after. So you gotta determine, okay, what's the criteria for us? What's the thing that helps us win contracts. So look from a, from a data standpoint is, is what I suggest.
0: Yeah, when we talk a lot about marketing on the show um, and branding, and when we're talking about branding, uh, we're always talking about ideal client and specializing and the benefits of specializing because it makes everything else in your job easier. And here's another example of why specialization over generalization um, is better. And, and I know that's a controversial topic in the architecture world. There's a lot of generalists out there who, who like being generalists, and there's a lot of successful generalists. Uh, but it's another example of, of why niching down and finding a specific specialty is is beneficial.
1: The riches are in the niches, they say. Right. Exactly right. And another thing you might want to look out for if I'm a small firm is what are the trends? For example, I was helping a, a structural engineering firm out in California. And this was a, a few years back when houses were going up in flames because there was a lot of fires out there. Yeah. And the particular code um, in California is a lot stricter than it is in, say, New Jersey, especially when it comes to structural engineering. So there was a tremendous need for structural engineering is on the residential side there so you know i think you have to look at your what's what's my area that i can get to that i that, that i could work within and what's happening with the population and the market in this area
0: yeah that's yeah. it that's very interesting to to look around and and look at trends not only um in your area but in in the, the in the nation in general, right? A lot of those trends start in one place and they end up coming to where you are eventually. And so by sort of recognizing that it's happening in one place, like California is is a leader in those changes, right? Codes change very uh, frequently and and is they're usually the ones that change first and then the rest of the nation sort of follows California. Um, and so not only looking locally at trends, but looking at trends that, Typically follow a pattern that they end up in in your region eventually.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as I, as, I hear, I hear sustainable sustainable design might be yeah uh,
0: might be a good trend.
1: Pop, it might be popular. <laughs> might in, be in next yeah. twenty years or so.
0: Um, Matt, <laughs> as we wrap things up here, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do right now today uh, that they can do to build a better business for tomorrow?
1: Sometimes people ask me, "Okay, Matt, if if there was one thing that you could put on a billboard, you know, what would that be? And I always say it would be your clients aren't stupid. Clients aren't stupid. And a lot of times and I I get this because I I read a lot of proposals. I've seen proposals from all over the country, from different firms all over the country. And I spent a lot of time with with people at the Construction Owners Association. And. These are not stupid people but a lot of times we treat them like they're stupid and we don't spend enough time kind of listening to them. You know, I think we a lot of times we feel like okay, we listen to our clients but you're you're not really listening to your clients. You got to understand your clients what they're up against. You know, like so for example, uh, a guy I know at a big university always says why do I have to come to work and be the referee, right? I I hired this designer to design me this project, and then I hired this builder to build me this project. So why do I come to work every day having to be the referee, right? You gotta understand that that situation exists. So like, I'll see in proposals, Classic example. This is a this is going to more on the construction side, but this also can deal with that. Uh, architects, I'm sure, see this question too. It's it's this. I will see in a, in a proposal to say, um, oftentimes there are disagreements in the field between architect architects and contractors, designers and contractors, and subcontractors. What processes will you put in place? to ensure you know, a smooth project you know, for our new facility or whatever. Classic example, something you might see in RFP. Here's how every contractor answers this. They'll say, we work with all the architects in town. And in fact, the principals of those architecture firms come over my house every Sunday after church and we sing Kumbaya uh, <laughs> by the fire every night. And they're all the, 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 they're all the godparents of my children. And so don't worry about it. Everything's going to be yeah, fine. Trust me. That's not answering the question. Again, your clients aren't stupid, right? The clients, they've been on a construction site before. They know when RFIs are flying around. Sometimes things get a little tense between that architect and the contractor right they've been on a site before they know this they ask why am i the referee and if you were listening to your client you wouldn't give an answer like that cuz you know they're they're not stupid they've experienced this so you got to answer the question not only do you have to answer the question you have to answer the question behind the question you know why are they concerned about this why are they asking this question yeah and you know the, the answer to the question is what is my process And if you don't have a process, maybe you need to think about, do I need a process? Do we need, what do we need to do to to ensure that there are less issues or less likely to have issues on a project?
0: His name is Matt Handel, H-A-N-D-A-L, Matt Handel. The website, you can go check out um, everything Matt's doing, including the course at helpeverybodyeveryday.com. We'll have links to that on the show notes. Matt, thank you very much for coming by and sharing some knowledge here about proposals and how we can compete with the big firms. And uh, I appreciate you. And I appreciate you coming by and sharing your knowledge at Entre Architect Podcast.
1: Thanks a lot for having me, Mark. Uh, I really appreciate it. And, and for anybody who's listening, if you go on the website, again, it's helpeverybodyeveryday.com. I know it's a weird name for a, a marketing website, but that's it, helpeverybodyeveryday.com. Right on the page, you can sign up for my free proposal writing crash course. It's a five day, you get five emails, uh, and it gives you a quick kind of crash course on what to do better when you're working on your proposals. And I think especially a small architecture firm will find that very useful.
0: All right, great. So it's uh, helpeverybodyeveryday.com right there on the homepage, we'll have links to that on the show notes. Matt, thank you, have a great day. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how Entree Architect will grow to serve thousands more architects just like you. This is our 10th year here at Entree Architect. We launched this thing back in 2012. It is 2022, if you haven't noticed. 10 years ago, we launched this podcast, and it's grown to thousands of architects listening every week because you share this link entrearchitect.com slash podcast, share a link to this episode with a friend. And thanks to our sponsors, fresh FreshBooks, and NCARB, we could not do it without you. Thank you for your support. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today on this episode are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entre Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. If you haven't gone to Gable Media yet, you need to gablemedia.com is a, is a place for you it's built for you it's curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world you are the audience dedicated to building a better world we built gablemedia for you go check it out at gablemedia.com that's g a b l media.com and it's official november 1st through november 3rd 2022 Add those dates to your calendar, and I will see you at the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting, the first ever live and in-person conference for you, small firm architects. Visit entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting right now to learn more. That's entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting, and I will see you in Austin. Thank you for listening today. Thank you for listening every week. I appreciate you coming back and sharing links to this episode. Go do that this episode. Go share it with a friend. Thanks for being here. Love, learn, and share what you know.
1: I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this. I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me.
0: Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architect's context and clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action.
1: There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be artists are temperamental so beautiful design is going to be a priority when the job is done we're going to actually need to live in the house not live with the person who designed it (laughs) and so uh, for me the the artistic skill the architectural skill is most important and so i would say like that would be 60 percent of it if not more
0: gain insights to build a successful practice subscribe engage and let's redefine your future together Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.